All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Torah Studies. This is our weekly exploration of the soul of the Torah portion tonight. Our class focuses not only on the Torah portion, but also on a very special day that is coming up on the Jewish and Chabad calendar, which we will talk about in a moment. All right, this week's Torah portion is Korach. We'll, we'll talk about Korach, who the... Huge sinkhole in Jerusalem this week. I didn't see that. David's writing in the chat about a huge sinkhole in Jerusalem. A huge sinkhole in Jerusalem that swallowed a whole bunch of cars. Oh my gosh. And I bet it, it hit on Korach Street. That would be absolutely epic if there was a Korach Street. No, no, I, I, no, I'm joking about the Korach Street. I didn't know about the sinkhole. Apparently that's a thing. Interesting. Listen, everyone's on the computer, and I can't see what you're doing on the browser. If you want to check it out, no worries. Hey, Mike, good to see you. All right, friends, here's what we're going to do. Let me set up the class. All right, first of all, I'm muting everybody so you have a nice, clean background. At any time, you can unmute. Just want to have a default, quiet background. Um, um, Mendel, say hi. Oh, you don't have to sneak in. There you go. All right. <laughs> All right, so, so this week we are going to explore the Torah portion of Korach as well as the very special day coming up this Sunday, which is the third day of the month of Tammuz, the Jewish month of Tammuz. So let's start with the third of Tammuz, known, known as Gimel Tammuz, which is the third. Gimel is the third letter, third of Tammuz. Um, what happened on Gimel Tammuz in 1994, the Lubavitcher Rebbe passed away. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe was the greatest Jewish leader of our generation, someone who revolutionized the Jewish world and really the world at large as well. I mean, what the Rebbe did, how the Rebbe looked at so many things as absolutely revolutionary. This Sunday, we're going to have a special event starting at 6.30 p.m. at Chabad in town and in town Jewish Academy, celebrating the life and legacy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, an, an evening of inspiration of, of uh, film, of storytelling. It's going to be a powerful evening. So join us in person Sunday at 6.30 p.m. What was the secret? If we could use such a term, what was the secret of the Rebbe's greatness? How, what made him such a great leader? There are many people who are leaders, many people who, are Jew, who, who have been Jewish leaders, but what made the Rebbe stand, stand out? What, what element did the Rebbe have that... that, that allowed him to be such a global leader, and again, not only to the Jewish community, but really beyond the confines of the Jewish community. So tonight, through our exploration of the Torah portion, we're going to discover a quality that the Rebbe possessed that I think speaks a lot to why and how he was such a great leader. So let's begin with our Torah portion, and by the end of the class, I'm going to circle back to speak about the Rebbe's life and legacy. So this week's Torah portion, as I said, is called Korach, and the main character is a man named Korach. Korach was a wealthy man. In fact, there's a Yiddish expression, Reich v'koyrach. Reich v'koyrach means rich, Reich means rich, as, as koyr, in, in Yiddish, koyrach or Korach, Rich as Korach, he was a wealthy fellow. He was also a Levite. He was a wealthy man. He was a Levite. And he was a prominent individual. 
The Torah portion opens by describing his attempt at overthrowing the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Now, Moses was, of course, the leader of the Jewish people, right? The one who led the Exodus, obviously, certainly God led the Exodus, but the human being representative, you know, that was leading the charge was Moses, speaking to Pharaoh, etc. The one who helped split the sea, the one who helped us get the Torah at Sinai, who led the campaign of building the Mishkan, Moses, right? The great Moses. And Korach also targeted the high priesthood of Aaron, or Aharon, Moses' brother. And Korach essentially and this is recorded in this biblical, uh, in, in the Torah portion, Korach says to the people, why are these two individuals, Moses and Aaron, promoting themselves as the leaders of us all? The entire congregation, all of us are holy. And speaking to Moses and Aaron, Maduatis nasu, al why do you lift yourselves up? Why do you raise yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. If we're all holy, what makes you holier than the rest of us? That was the claim, that was the complaint, that was the um, the talking points. That was the talking point of Korach. Now Korach not only himself rose up against Moses and Aaron's leadership, but he also enlisted some some people to join his cause. Most prominently, there were two fellows who were always looking for a fight, Datan and Aviram. These were two people that had always had a beef with Moses for whatever reason, and they joined the cause of Korach, again trying to overthrow the leadership. And together with them, there joined another 250 people. These 250 people the Torah describes as men of renown. They were... They were well-known. They were people with a good reputation. These 250 men were leaders amongst the congregation, members of the Sanhedrin of the Jewish court at, at that time in the desert. But they joined, I don't know if it's but or and, whatever, whatever transition word you want to use, they joined the revolt or the attempted revolt, the attempted coup of Korach. So what happens? What happens at the end is something that I think we're all familiar with, which is ultimately Korach and his, uh, and his cohort find a, uh, a very unique punishment. The way it works is that the way it worked was the ground opened up and swallowed Korach and his inner circle. And the 250 individuals, the 250 men that joined in addition to the inner circle, those 250 people had brought fire pans to bring incense. Let me actually clarify that. Let me rewind a little bit, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that, and we'll just round out the story. Then we're going to get to some commentaries. Um, the 250 people were vying to be high priests as well. They wanted to be a high priest like Aaron. So Moses says, look, you want to be a high priest? High priests bring an incense offering. But if you're not a legitimate high priest, it's not going to end well. They said, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to bring it. So Aaron brought in an incense offering. These 250 people brought an incense offering. The end of the story is Aaron's offering is accepted. And 250 people, 
they, are, they die in fire. A plague of fire from above, and they're singed to death with this fire, bringing the incense offering. And Korach and his inner circle, their demise happens through the earth opening up and swallowing them and their possessions and then closing back up. So Korach, his inner circle, and the 250 people, in short order, are no longer. That's the story of Korach. So the question that, that the commentaries struggle with is, or what they deal with is, what was Korach's motive? You know, on the, on the surface, Korach is saying power to the people. Korach is leading a populist revolution or, or revolt. Korach is saying, what, what, what was the, um, the, the tagline of the French Revolution? Liberté, égalité, um, fraternité, right? Or I'm saying it probably in different order. The idea of power to the people, brotherhood, and, and, and we don't need a hierarchy. Let's, let's overthrow the hierarchy. So on the surface, that's what Korach was saying. But when you look a little bit deeper, the, the commentaries point out that that wasn't exactly his agenda. That was maybe how he got people on board of, with his campaign. But that wasn't really his agenda. So what was his motivation? What was driving this attempted and failed coup? So we're going we're gonna to look at some classic commentaries. We're going to look at two. Now, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of classic commentaries on the Torah. We're going to look at two, the Ibn Ezra and the Ramban, Nachmanides. So Ibn Ezra and Ramban are going to give us two different takes on what went wrong. I'm going to share my screen with you. We're going to jump right into this. This is page 161. If you have a book, it's 161. Otherwise, text one. And let's ask Susan Crone, if you don't mind, please unmute and read text number one. And Korach took, this event took place in the desert when the role of the firstborn was revoked and given to the Levites. Korach and his cohort assumed that Moshe did this on his own accord, handling the position, handing the positions to the family of Kehot, was his closest kin and to all the Levites in general who were his family. The Levites rose up against him because they were slated to be under the authority of Aaron and his sons, Datan and Abiram, rebelled because Moshe took away the rights of the firstborn from their father, Ruvain, and gave them to Yosef. Perhaps they suspected that Moshe did that for the sake of Joshua, or Yehoshua, his servant who was from Yosef. Also, Korach was a firstborn, for thus was written, the heads of the congregation as well were firstborns. Thus, they attempted to offer sacrifices and incense. Thank you. So let me explain the Ibn Ezra. It's a really interesting take on the whole story. So he explains that what was Korach's beef? What really got him going with this whole revolt? It happened right after the giving of the Torah and the sin of the golden calf. Because right after the sin of, and, and you'll see what I mean in a second. What happened after the sin of the golden calf was that God took away the privilege of the firstborn and he gave it to the Levites. Remember that? Remember um, the Levites were supposed to be the, the leaders of the congregation and those that were going to serve in the, in the temple and the Mishkan, the tabernacle. But because of the sin of the, because of the, sin of the golden calf, that the firstborn were part of, so that was taken away from them and given instead 
um, as an honor to the Levites. So although Korach was a Levite, he was also a firstborn. And as, right, as the last paragraph says, Korach was a firstborn. And he felt like Moses was playing around with this. He was taking from the firstborn. He, he, let me say this clearly. Korach believed that Moses was making up the law on his own. And he was pulling stuff away from the firstborn and giving it to his immediate family, the sons of Kahat, because Moses was from the Levite family of Kahat. There were three families, Gershon, Kahat, Merari. He felt like a lot of stuff was going to the Kahat family, and that was Moses playing nepotism or playing favorites. And that, he felt, was an affront. That was a chutzpah, that, that should not be done, and that wasn't right. And he said, I'm going to stand up and, and protest against this and take it back, power to the people. So that's why, what, he, what, got his, what got his goat, so to speak. That's why he was all perturbed. What about Datan and Abiram? Same deal. They were from the tribe of Reuben, Reuven. And the tribe of Reuven, they lost their right. They were the, Reuven was the firstborn of Jacob, the, first, the eldest of the 12 tribes. But they lost their rights. It went to Joseph. It went to the Levites, whatever it was. And they felt, again, Dr. Nabiram felt that they were being slighted and they were being mistreated. And the 250 people, he says, they were also firstborn. Where does it say that? Um, one second. It says that... It says that somewhere that the 250 people... Korach was a firstborn. Oh, yeah, yeah, the heads of the congregation. Yes, there we go. Yeah, the 250 people were also firstborns. Those were 250 firstborns, and they were also offended. What they thought was, at least when Korach said, hey, look at the big picture. Look at the conspiracy. Moses taking power away, potential power away from others, and consolidating for himself, his brother, and their immediate family. We have to stand up to this. We have to revolt, etc. He's making it up. It's on his own. And, and, and we have to stand up. That's, according to Ibn Ezra, what happened. This is, again, Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, Bamidbar, number 16.1. That is his explanation of how this evolved. What stirred, what, what got it started. Now, I should mention, before we continue, maybe it, needs, maybe it need not be said. I'm going to say it anyway. Korach was wrong. He was 100% wrong. Why? Because Moses did not act of his own accord. Moses did so according to the guidance of Hashem. It's recorded in Torah. And Korach just wanted to, you know, wanted to cause a revolution so he could be in charge. So Korach was wrong, but this is, this is what he said, and this is how he got people to join his cause because he, he painted it as this massive conspiracy and consolidation of power. That's the Ibn Ezra. Let's take a look at another opinion or another explanation of this whole story. Nachmanides. This is Ramban, not Rambam. Not Maimonides, but Nachmanides. So take a look at what he says. Um, David, David Lazan. Please read Ramban, text 2a, Korach Tuk. Here we go. Korach Tuk, Rabbi Avram bin uh, Ibn Ezra wrote, this event took place in the Sinai Desert. Korah was the firstborn as well. In this, Rabbi Avram follows his view that the Torah was written without regard to chronological order. However, I wrote that in my opinion, the entire Torah is written in chronological order, except for the places in which scripture notes explicitly that it is, that it is out of order. 
in those places, it is because of a certain need or suitable reason. Consequently, the correct explanation here is that this event occurred in the Paran Desert at Kadesh Barnea after the incident of the spies. I'm going to explain this. I'm going to explain what this means. Um, basically, and, and then I'm going to ask you to read to uh, text to be. But but let me just first explain the Ibn Ezra that we just read a moment ago, uh, like the the last text, the first text, really. So he says that the revolt of Korah happened right after the sin of the golden calf, when the rights of the firstborn were transferred to the Levites, and the family of Kahat kind of started consolidating power. That is when Korach's revolution happened. In other words, this story took place before the building of the tabernacle, before the sin of the spies, kind of, you know, a, a little bit back into, chronologically, a little prior to where we're up to in the Torah readings. That's the Eben Ezra. And the Ramban says, no, 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 no. No, there's no reason to explain that this Torah portion of Korach really happened chronologically before other stories that we just read about before this. There's no reason to make things complicated when it's not clear from the, when it's not explicitly stated in the Torah as such. Therefore, the Ramban says, Nachmanani says, I prefer to understand it as chronologically happening after the sin of the spies. In other words, what triggers Korach's revolt is not the sin of the golden calf and the removal of power from the firstborn, but rather something about the sin of the spies. Something about that triggers the revolt of Korach and, and also enables others to join that revolution or attempted coup, whatever you want to call it. Okay, so what was it? What was, what was it about the sin of the spies that got that going? So he continues to explain David. Korach was angry about the appointment of El to leadership. He was also envious of Aram. The reason that Han and Abiram joined the joined with Korach was not because Moses took away the right of the firstborn from the tribe of Reuben, for it was therefore Father Jacob who took it away from Reuben and gave it to Joseph. Rather, they stated their complaint to kill us in the desert and even into a land of flow, even into a land flowing with milk and honey, you have not brought us. As long as the Jews were in the Sinai Desert, no bad event occurred. For even the very severe sin of the golden calf resulted in relatively few deaths. The rest of the people were saved through Moses' prayers, which lasted 40 days and 40 nights. Consequently, the nation loved Moses with all their soul and obeyed him. If someone would have rebelled at that time, he would have been stoned by the people. Therefore, Barak bided his time and refrained from reacting to Aaron's appointment as Kohen Gadol. In the same way, the firstborn to refrain from reacting to the elevation of the Levites and all of Moses' actions. However, when they arrived at the Paran Desert, many were burned in the Tavera and died in Kibrot Hatavo. And then, and when they sinned with the spies, Moses did not succeed in upholding the decree with his prayer, and the leaders of the tribes died in a plague before Hashem. It was decreed upon the entire people to die in full. As a result, the people were embittered, and they began to feel as feel that all their failures came as a result of Moses' leadership. Korach saw this opportunity now to dispute with Moses, and he reasoned the people would listen to him. This, then, is the reason why the dispute appears here after the incident with the spies. Okay, so the Ramban says, I have a different 
explanation for the motivation and really the catalyst for Korach's revolt. It wasn't because the, the power was taken away from the firstborn and given to the Levites, and it wasn't because of Aaron's appointment to the high priesthood. All of that happened chronologically beforehand, and that doesn't make sense where this story appears in Torah. Rather, it was the fatigue of what had happened recently in their desert travels. They had received the Torah, they had sinned with the golden calf, they had built a tabernacle, then they, then they were going to go into the land of Israel, but then they sinned with the spies. And there were plagues that broke out. And remember, the people requested meat, and then they were killed for requesting meat, that whole thing. That's, so one disaster after the other, and then on top, the cherry on top was the decree where God says, you're going to wander for 40 years. At this point, the people, many people became despondent. They became very um, uneasy. They became unsettled. And this was Korach's opportunity to really play on people's angst, anxiety, fear, frustration, and say, what kind of leader is this? Moses hasn't delivered. Maybe he delivered, you know, back in the day with the plagues and splitting the sea, but what has he done for us lately? He wasn't able to stop the plague by the meat cravings. He wasn't able to annul the decree of the 40 years of wandering. He wasn't able to stop the 10 spies from being killed after bringing their, bat, their negative report in a plague, right? And, and, and they were the leaders of, of 10 of those tribes. And so Korach essentially said, Moses is failing as a leader, and we need to overthrow Moses and overthrow Aaron and, and, and start again. According to Ramban, this was the motivation. Now, you have to understand, all of, this, all of these explanations are explaining how it is that Korach got anyone on board with him, right? That's like, how did, somebody comes up and says, let's take down Moses. Everyone's like, why? Like, what's, what's your angle? What's your story? It's like barbecue sauce has an origin story. Like, what's your story? Why are we doing this? Like, what's the, what's the theme? Like, why? So he had a story. Either it's because, look, he's taking privilege away from the firstborn and moving it to his family. Or it's he's ineffective as a leader and we're now going to be wandering and dying out of the desert over the next 40 years. You want this leader? You want a new leader? Whatever it was, that's how he got people on board to, to rise up against Moses and against Aaron. But what was his agenda? According to pretty much all the commentaries, his agenda was power. Because, as I've mentioned, I don't even know how many times I've mentioned this, but this is a truth in history. When you look at history, anytime there's been a populist revolution where the people overthrow the hierarchy and say power to the people, what happens is someone fills the void of leadership and typically the tyranny is worse than what there was. The French Revolution comes to mind and other things. Or Animal Farm, what was the, what was the, the lush and what was the language in Animal Farm in the book? Right? All animals are created equal. Right? There was a whole revolt with the animals. All animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. Right? So what's the vart? What's the idea? The idea is that in an absence of leadership, when the people are rising up, guess what? There's still going to be leaders and someone's going to come up from there. So the understanding is that Korach really wanted that leadership for himself. The only question is, what was his opening? What opening did he find to sell it to get people on board? I mean, the, <laughs> when Moses is leading people across the sea, that's probably not the time to say, down with Moses. Everyone's like, really? Because he's really doing a, an amazing job. But it's, it's when... 
people feel like their, their privilege is being taken away. Like the Ibn Ezra says, maybe that's an opening. Or like Ramban says, when the people get the news that that's it, they're wandering 40 years in the desert, gonna die, this generation will die out, and they're not going to go into the promised land. Maybe that's an opening. Either one. Honestly, we have two options. There are dozens of more options to explain exactly how he did this. Doesn't matter. Choose your favorite, right? The bottom line is, right? The bottom line is that Korach essentially wanted power for himself. Which essentially speaks to the way everybody knows Korach. If you need to, if you're filling out a poll of biblical characters, right? Good guy or bad guy? Hero or villain, right? So you would have, let's say, um, the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Hero or villain? Help me out here. Hero or villain? Serpent. Villain. Okay, good. Villain. Excellent. Abraham. Good guy. Good guy. Good. Excellent. What about um, Balaam? Balaam. Oh, that's the donkey. Yeah, Balaam with the donkey. Yeah, Balaam. Villain. Villain. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, Joseph. Hero. 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 Good. All right. Korach. Villain. Villain. Everyone would say villain. Bad guy. He tried to start up with Moses and Aaron. And his end was the earth swallowed up. The earth opened up and swallowed him alive with his people. And the 250 people were burned to death. It was horrible. Horrific. So everyone would say villain. The problem is, if that's the case, I have a question. We know, we know that... There's a there's a there's a really beautiful beautiful there's a really powerful teaching from the Talmud. Let's take a look at text number three. Donna, please read text number three. What is the meaning of the verse? But the name of the wicked shall rot. Rabbi Elaida said it means that decay will spread on their names, meaning that we do not call others by their names. Which means don't name your kid Korach. Don't name your kid Balaam. Don't name your kid Nachash, serpent, right? Don't name your kid after the bad guys. That's what it means. V'shem, Risham, Yirkov, the name of the wicked shall rot. Yeah, you don't name, don't, don't, don't perpetuate their name. So I'll ask you a klotz kasha. I'll ask you an obvious question. Why are we naming a Torah portion Korach? Yeah, the, I think I mentioned this. The name of this week's Torah portion is Korach. Korach was the bad guy. Why are we naming a portion after the bad guy? What kind of business is this? Whether he was bad and he, and he, and he, he, he jumped on this provocation or that provocation, doesn't matter. Choose your favorite. Pick a third option. It doesn't matter. Bottom line is, he started up with Moses. He started up with Aaron. He fragmented the Jewish people. He brought harm and tragedy upon our people. And you're naming a Torah portion after him. By the way, do you know how many Torah portions are named Moses or Moshe? Yeah, zero. Zero. No Torah portions named Moshe. Do you know how many Torah portions are named Abraham? None. How many are named Isaac? None. How many are named Jacob? None. And Korach gets his, names in light, gets his name in lights. Are you kidding me? 
And, and, and I know what you're thinking. Well, maybe it's just because it's conveniently the second, um, the second word in, a, um, in the Torah portion. Vayikach Korach, oh, we're looking for a title. So it's the second word. It's conveniently like right there in the Torah portion. So that's why it was chosen. Really? That's it? Just because it was conveniently placed right there? Come on. There's got to be a deeper reason, especially considering that you're calling it Korach. Since when do we use a villainous name for a Torah portion? What kind of business is this? That's question number one. Question number one. It's not my question. It's the Rebbe's question. That's question number one. Question number two has to do with the 250 people who were like, sorry, the 250 people who aligned, not were like, who aligned with Korach. So there was Korach, there was Datan and Abiram, and then there were the 250 men of renown, the famous or whatever, somewhat prominent people who also joined with this and they brought fire pans of incense. What was that about? So let me explain. Korach had an issue with Moses and Aaron, but it seems like these 250 people, they wanted to be priests. They wanted to be Kohanim, but not just any priest. They wanted to be the high priest because, you know, it was a high priest who would typically bring the incense offering. They were gunning for whose job? Aaron's job. Now, here's my question. My question is, what were they thinking? How many high priests are there? One. So 250 people are vying for the same job and they're all bringing incense. Now, they knew, this was clear, they knew what had, what had happened to Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they brought an incense offering that they were not supposed to bring because they were not the high priests. Right? What happened when they brought, this is from the book of Leviticus, what happened when Nadab and Abihu, what happened when they brought a fire offering, an incense offering that they were not supposed to bring? They died. They died. They died. It says fire entered their nostrils and they died. Their soul expired or left the body. Soul doesn't expire, it left the body. So, one second. They knew that there was one high priest. Now, they wanted to be high priest, but it's, it should be pretty simple to do the math and look around. You got 250 people that are all bringing fire pans. Okay, so what are the odds for each person that they're going to be the one and not die in this? Are you with me? On my, is my question being, is my, does my question make sense? Yes? So you want to tell me that Korach, one guy, wanted to be the high priest and he, was, and he had support? Sure. I mean, still crazy, but yeah, maybe. I, I could sort of understand that. Or at least, you know, see where he's... Cut. But 250 people? It, aren't they looking around like, uh, hold on. I, I thought I was dressing up for the high priest today. You're also? And you, and you, and you, and you? Most of us are going to die. What were they thinking? The, were they thinking that suddenly there's going to be 250 high priests in, 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 in Judaism? Oh, yeah. Until now, there was one high priest. But because you complained 
and overthrew the high priest, now we have a new law. Now there's 250 high priests. Meshuggah, look, what were they even thinking? Doesn't even make sense. Are you with me in the question? It's such an obvious question, no one asks it. It's so obvious, no one even, like, it, it, it seems like, well, it doesn't make sense to me, but I, no one's asking it, so I'm going to pretend like I'm not, I'm not going to ask it either because it's probably a silly question. It's not a silly question. It, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable, it's a strong question. What were they thinking? It was going to change? 250 high priests suddenly being appointed? The whole thing doesn't make sense. Take a look at text number four. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, share my screen, and I'm going to read this. It's a little bit of a longer text. Take a look at this. In other words, I, I like how it's phrased here. Were they suicidal? What were they thinking? Right? Take a look at text four from the Midrash. Um, now, I, I want to say this before I start. The translation is, uh, for some reason, it's a little bit literal, and therefore the English, uh, it's a little bit awkward. I'm going to try to make it work to the best of my ability on the fly here, but hopefully the, the essential meaning is going to come through, even if it is kind of between the lines. So Moses said to the people, to the 250 men, do this, take censers. Censers are um, like uh, metal sticks with like a thing to put fire and incense, and you wave it around, whatever. So take censers, Korach and all his company. What was his reason for saying this to them? So Moses said to them, in the religions of the nations, there are many laws, and they do not all assemble in one house. Now, as for us, we have one God, one Torah, one justice, one altar, and one high priest. But you, 250 men, are yet all seeking high priesthood. Do the math. It doesn't make sense. I also am willing in this regard. <sighs> willing, this, this word is going to haunt me. It's not willing. I also desire this. The Hebrew is, af ani rotzeh which means, I also want this. Uh, you want to all be high priests? I also want to be a high priest. Therefore, you and all your company have come together against God. Do this. Take censers and place fire in them. Let's continue. Here you have a service more precious than all the others. It is the incense, the most precious of the sacrifices. But a deadly poison had been put within it. Not literally, but spiritually. Through which Nadab and Abihu were burned. Moses, he is Moses, therefore warned them. Then it shall come to pass that when, that, sorry, that the man whom God chooses is the Holy One. Do we not know that the one whom God chooses is the Holy One? Rather, Moses said to them, See, I am telling you that you are not to incur guilt on your 250 souls, because when you sacrifice, only the one to be chosen from among you shall come out alive, and all the rest of you shall perish. You Levites have gone too far. In other words, Moses was saying it's a bad idea, even according to your own logic, even according to your own logic, that you you want to have a new high priest, there's 250 of you, right? Y'all, sugar. what's going on? See, I've told you a great thing. Were they not fools in that when he gave them this warning, they took it upon themselves to offer sacrifice. They had sinned against their own lives. And that is how this Midrashic statement concludes. They were on a suicidal mission. And our question is, why? How does it make sense? This is our second question. Let me tee both up. Let me just remind you of the two questions so far. Question number one. Why are we naming the portion after someone who was not righteous? And question number two. What were the 250 men thinking? What were they thinking? I want to ask another question. Related question. Okay, so those are our two questions. I want to present another related topic 
and ask a related question. But this is going to take place about 800 years later, after the story of Korah. Seven, eight hundred years or so after the story of Korach, of this week's Torah portion. In the times of the Second Temple, there was a situation. The situation was that the high priests were dying at a record rate. And to explain what was going on, let me show you the following text. This text is coming from, skipping a few texts over here. This text is coming from the Talmud tract at Yoma 9a. Take a look. Rabba Barbar Chana said in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, What is the meaning of the verse, The fear of God prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened? What does that mean? Or more precisely, what is that a reference to? Because, I mean, the meaning is, if you fear God, you'll live long, and if not, you won't. Fine, but what is, it, what is it referring to? So Rabbi Yochanan explained, The fear of God prolongs days. This is a reference to the first temple, the era of the first holy temple, which stood for 410 years, and in which only 18 high priests served. Listen to this. In the 410 years that the first temple stood, how many high priests served? 18. But the years of the wicked will be shortened. This is a reference to the second temple era, which stood for 420 years, and which over 300 high priests served. You see what's going on here? The first temple stood for 410 years, 18 high priests. You do the math over there. I'm just going to do some quick math. 410 divided by 18 is an average of? About 22. Yeah, about 22.7, close to 23 years per high priest tenure. Okay? The second temple era lasted 420, and there were 300 high priests. Now, but it's not even that. It's not even 420 divided by 300. Because deduct from that figure 40 years that Shimon HaTzadik served. He was one of the high priests, and he served for 40 years during the second temple. And 80 years that Yochanan the high priest served again in the second temple era. That's 120 years. 80 plus 40. That leaves 300 years. And then 10 years that Yishmael ben Pavi served, and some say 11 years that Rabbi Elazar ben Kharsim served. So we're dealing with less than 300 years and over 300 high priests. Or let's just say approximately 300 years and approximately 300 high priests. These men were all righteous and were privileged to serve extended terms, the ones we just mentioned. So go out and calculate from this point forward and conclude. Each and every one of the remaining high priests did not complete his year in office. The Talmud was good at math also, right? The Talmud says, right, Jews and accounting, always a strong, a strong quality here. So Rabbi Yochanan, was it Rabbi Yochanan? Yeah, Rabbi Yochanan said, go do the math. Second temple era, 420 years, minus 40, minus 80, minus 10, minus 11. We're dealing with under 300 years. And 300 high priests in those approximately a little less than 300 years. That means that each of those other high priests did not even last a full year. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. What happened was that on Yom Kippur, when they would go into the Holy of Holies, because that was the one day a year you went to the Holy of Holies, 
to bring the incense offering. If they were not worthy, they would die. And you may know this, that when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, no one else was allowed in. They tied a rope around his waist. And if he didn't come out after a little while, they would pull. And if there wasn't a pull back, they dragged out his body. And that happened three, approximately, 300 times in the second temple era. And the question is, in the first temple era, each high priest lasted 22, 23 years on average. The second temple, aside for three or four high priests, they were going through them every single year. What happened? Simple. Very simple. They were not worthy to be a high priest. How did they get the gig? Text 8. Jerusalem Talmud Tracta Yoma. During the second temple period, the high priesthood was obtained with money. There's your answer. Most of the high priests, aside from the few that we mentioned in this text, uh, Yochanan and Shimon Atzadik and Yishma ben Pavi and Rebbe Lozben Kharsom, aside from those three or four, the rest of the high priests of the Second Temple era were corrupt. They bought their way in. They, they weren't appointed or they didn't deserve it. They bought it. And your question might be, well, how did they buy it? Well, what, there was corruption at the top. It was complicated. Tonight's not the class. Tonight is not the night to discuss what was going on during the Second Temple era. How did the corruption happen? It happened. They, they paid their way, whether it was to Rome or to whoever was also in charge, or there was corruption within the temple. Tonight's not the night to get into the details and the politics. But it was bought, and therefore they died. So I want to ask you a question. Again, a klutz kasha. A question that is so obvious that no one asks. Number 300. Didn't he know? Didn't he know by now that what happens when somebody buys the position? What was the expectation? I'm going to make it out alive? Year after year, the high priest is being pulled out, and there's a levi, there's a funeral. So, because they paid for it. So, what's, what's the cheshbon? What's the calculation? What's the expectation? It was suicide. It was suicidal. Why did they do it again and again and again? 300 times. It doesn't make any sense. Here's the answer. And this answer is going to explain the 250 men, and it's going to explain Korach. And it's going to explain why the Torah portion is named after Korach. And it's going to give us a glimpse into the greatness of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The high priests, the people that bought the high priesthood in the Second Temple era, knew they were going to die. And they did it anyway. And they were fighting each other to be able to do it. You know why? Because they wanted something more than life itself. They wanted to see God. They wanted the ultimate spiritual experience. They wanted the ultimate divine high. They wanted it even though they knew it was going to cost them their lives. They were willing to pay with their lives, not just the money that they gave, to pay with their lives in order to go into the Holy of Holies and see God's presence in that most sacred space on earth. They didn't care. They didn't mind. They were were running to do this. They were fighting each other for the privilege, for the opportunity to give their lives 
to see this. Suicidal, yes. But what was the rationale? To be able to see God. This explains the same rationale for the 250 men that brought the incense. The censors with the incense, what were they thinking? What, you, all 250 of you are going to be installed as high priest? No, it wasn't about that. They knew it wasn't going to be all 250. Moses told them and they still went ahead with it. They wanted an experience of touching the divine, of bringing that offering and somehow feeling a connection. You see, nowadays, we seek other types of highs. Human beings are seeking pretty, oftentimes other types of highs. But spiritual highs, maybe not as much as it was in those days. But in those days, there was a sensitivity. And there was a yearning. And there was a delight in the spiritual. There was a, a passion to have that spiritual experience. And so the people, the 250 men that were with Korach, were willing and, and, and desired to give up their lives to do so. Take a look at the Rebbe's explanation. Text number nine. See this in the Rebbe's words. Okay, here we go. The Talmud states with regard to the high priest in the second temple that not a single one made it through the year. For they died on Yom Kippur. Nonetheless, many jockeyed for the position, taking it with money. The Rebbe says, this is extremely puzzling. Seeing that the previous high priest didn't make it through, coupled with an awareness of his own unworthiness, they knew who they were. Why would anyone push for this position? And the Rebbe explains, the explanation is this. These people possessed a tremendous desire to enter the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur where the Shekhinah would be manifest, so much so that it was to them worth giving up their very lives. They gladly did it. They gladly gave up their lives. They were willing to give up their lives just to touch the divine. The 250 men with Korach did the same thing. They were willing to do the same thing, willing to give up their lives for that experience, for the chance of being a high priest, or even the experience of offering incense and a fire descending from above, even if it would consume them, they wanted the experience. In other words, in other words, as villainous as they might have been, as wrongly as they might have acted, ultimately, in their heart of hearts, what was their desire? To connect with God. Are you with me on what I just said? Their ultimate, ultimate, deepest desire was to connect purely and perfectly with God. It manifest in a way that was untoward, in a way that was not kosher. But the core desire was holy. And the Rebbe says this explains not only the high priest in the second temple era, the 250 people with Korach, but Korach Himself, his own motive was also ultimately deep down pure. 10, text 10 from the Rebbe's Sicha, from the Rebbe's teaching. What was behind Korach's drive to be the high priest? Rashi and other Midrashim tell us that in response to his claim, Moses said, I too want this. Remember we read that in the Midrash. Remember when, when, when Moses said, I also want to be a high priest. In other words, the Rebbe says, the drive to be high priest is commendable and profound. Indeed, Korach's drive to be high priest was not simply to assume power over the people, 
to Jewish people, rather, inasmuch as the high priest is consecrated to the highest levels of sanctity, constantly standing in service before God, Korach and his ilk wanted so desperately to reach that level of holiness to assume the perch of the high priest. Ultimately, they were driven by a holy motive. Ultimately, they were driven by the highest motive. They wanted the deepest, most sublime, most transcendent relationship with God. So what was the problem? The problem was, it's like when the, when the, in the Ten Commandments, when it says, do not covet. It doesn't mean if you see a Tesla all right, on the road that you can't say, I also want a Tesla. That's, that's not coveting. You know what coveting is? Not I want a Tesla. I want that guy's Tesla. That's coveting. So, covet, so the issue wasn't that they wanted to also be connected with God. The issue was that they wanted to take it away from Aaron. Are you with me on that? So they went about it in the wrong way. Moses also wanted to be a high priest, but he wasn't going to start up with God's plan. So Korach, his desire to be a high priest, beautiful, commendable. Yasher Korach, Kalakavod, and other Hebrew phrases of similar uh, style. Wonderful, more power to you. And the 250 man, good. It's good to be ambitious. It's good to have spiritual ambition. It's beautiful. It's deep. And it's, it's sublime. But you want to divide the people? Overthrow Aaron? Knock him down to get up? That's not kosher. That's not kosher. You want a Tesla? Buy a Tesla. You want to steal someone else's Tesla? We got a problem. You want to be a high priest? You want to get close to God? Get close to God to the best of your ability. You want to knock someone else out of their position to take theirs? Now we got a problem. So this is the Rebbe's innovation in understanding Korach. For 3,300 years, 3,275 or so, for oh, let's make it simple. For over 3,000 years, Korach was deemed a villain. Korach was seen as the worst of the worst. Korach, terrible. And the Rebbe says, you know who Korach was? Korach was holy. Korach had the holiest of ambitions. Korach was sublime and transcendent and sensitive, spiritually sensitive. He went about it in a negative way. And because of that, there were consequences. But at his core, he was holy. And that's why, you guessed it, that's why, you can finish my sentence, right? That's why, somebody help me out here, that's why. There you go. I'm sure I heard something in, in all of that that said that's why there's a Torah portion named after him. The ultimate villain should have a Torah portion named after him? No. No. Because he's not the ultimate villain. You know who he is? He's a Jew who had a fierce desire to connect with Hashem. He went about it. It, it, it wasn't manifest in the best way. But it was a beautiful Beautiful desire. Let's take a look at how the Rebbe says this inside our text. Text number 12. The reason why, look at this, the reason why Jewish custom, which itself is Torah, is to name this parsha, this Torah portion, Korach, is now well understood. The message we ought to take from Korach's story is not only negatively, namely, don't be like Korach. That's what everyone believes. What's the message? Don't be like Korach. No, come on. 
So you name a portion after someone to tell us for all time, don't be like him. Seriously. Rather, the Rebbe says, there is a positive message here. What drove Korach, the 250 people with him, and even Moses, is something we ought to all emulate. Korach's deepest desire was holy. The 250 people's deepest desire was holy. Moses himself attested about himself that he also had this desire. The mistake was how they went about it, but the core desire was holy. This is how the Rebbe saw the story of Korach. And I'm not exaggerating when I, t when I told you and when I tell you again that for over 3,000 years in Jewish scholarship, I challenge you to open up any commentary on Korach. I challenge you. Find a positive spin and you won't. But our Rebbe reclaimed Korach and said, Korach, I see your virtue. Korach, I see your heart of hearts. Korach, I see, I choose to see you not as a villain, not as a bad person, but as a person who was so deeply driven by a holy motive that he was blinded in his, in his way of going about it. Methodology. In his method, oh, good, in his methodology. His motives were holy, his methodology questionable, not ideal. This is what one of the elements that is at the heart of what made the Lubavitcher Rebbe such a great leader. The Rebbe looked at everyone, even at Korach, and saw the beauty inside. The Rebbe didn't look at superficialities, didn't look at externalities, didn't look at labels. The Rebbe was against labels. Labels are when you look at someone, something from the outside and just judge it. Oh yeah, knee-jerk reaction. Oh, you're this, you're that, you're the other. Korach's a bad guy. Done. The Rebbe looked at the core. And the Rebbe, wherever he looked, he saw beauty. And when the Rebbe spoke to you, you sense more than anything else, here's someone that gets me. But not just gets me. Here's someone who sees the best in me. And you know what that does to a person? You want to live up to that vision. You start seeing yourself in that way. When someone looks at you and sees great potential, they give you the gift of seeing yourself with that potential. And when you see yourself in that way, the sky's the limit as to what you can accomplish. And so my friends, in the final analysis, the Rebbe's insight into the psyche, the heart and soul of Korach, shares insight into the heart and soul of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe's way of looking at Korach tells us so much about who the Rebbe was and why he was such a profound leader. So often our leaders, so-called leaders, look at others in the worst light, point out the flaws of the other, denigrate others, put each other down, right? No matter what's, it doesn't, it's not, it's not political. It's, it's the world we live in. It's the climate we live in. But a leader who wherever they look, they see the best and the brightest 
encouraging people to live up to their potential, to their own potential. That's a leader. That's someone who's truly inspiring. That's someone who can move mountains and literally revolutionize the world. And so my friends, as we get ready for the third of Tammuz, coming up Saturday night and Sunday, the Rebbe's yard sign, let us resolve to be a little bit more like the Rebbe, to look at each other and see the best, to look at ourselves and see the best. And when we look and we see the best, the world indeed will be a beautiful place. Once again, I invite you to join me Sunday night at 6.30 for a very special program in honor of the Rebbe's life and legacy. Please join me. We have a reception followed by a beautiful program Sunday night, 6.30 p.m. at Chabad in Town. It's free and open to the community. Just put your name down on the website, intownjewishacademy.org slash Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E. All right, thank you for joining me tonight. We can take some questions and comments. Um, I hope you uh, appreciated tonight's class, and I hope it's uh, inspired you going into, uh, into Shabbos and into this very special weekend. Questions, comments? Okay. I guess we're all set. <laughs> all right. Friends, have a good night. Lila Tov. I think this is our like fastest Torah studies class in a while. Um, Susan, you have something? No. All right. You're saying bye. Sold. All right. Very good. Very good. Good to see everybody. Ray and Steve and Joy and Adina Malka and Mike and Sarah and Mom and Leah and Susan and Paul and Donna and Fred and David and Yona and Mark and Olia and Lisa and Steve and Yaakov and Richard. We'll see you all. Have a good night. Take care, everybody. Lila Tov. <laughs>